This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. so very much. Uh, Loretta and I, as a family, we've been here for uh, about six weeks now. You guys have been so brilliant. Um, not, uh, Naomi and, and Howard are away, but you know, in their absence as well, they've been so good to us and helping us settle. Uh, I'm loving work, loving church, figuring out who's who in the zoo and what's what. It's really great. And uh, and Lorette is, uh, has signed up with an agency. She'd like to get into the teacher's assistant uh, role. So we're praying for that to kind of kick into gear. And the kids, uh, we've been praying for Joshua to get into school following an appeal for him because there was no space. That went really well. So thankfully, both kids were able to start school together now uh, last week. Megan was in a couple of weeks earlier. So life feels like it's really settling down. We're having a great time now. So thank you very much. You're still welcome to invite us around for dinner, coffees, all that sort of thing. We, we'd love to get to know you. We can't have all of you around in our house all at the same time. So it's great. We'll have people in. You invite us around. We want to hang out. We want to get to know you guys. It's a great bunch of people, great town. We want to get to know Cheltenham. So let's go on walks uh, and get to know the place. Um, so that's all of us. And... Um, we truly have experienced God's kindness through you guys very, very much. So we love it. We appreciate it hugely. Getting into uh, the preach, we are um, starting a series which uh, is entitled Seven Days That Changed the World. And um, with a subtitle, The Journey to the Cross. So seven days that changed the world, the journey to the cross. This morning we're going to be focusing on the triumphant entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. This is probably a passage that you've read a little bit about if you've been a Christian for a while. Um, if you're not a Christian or even if you're a Christian that doesn't know much about the story, great. Let's keep our ears pricked. But especially if you've become accustomed to the story, let's stay sharp on it. Let's see what what the, uh, the Scriptures can teach us. Let's see what God wants to reveal to us and how He wants to apply it to our lives. Um, two months ago was Christmas. I know that's a bit of a random one in talking about Easter. But two weeks ago was Christmas. Uh, two months ago was Christmas. And you not, might not want to put up your hand, but some of you will know exactly what I'm talking about. You got a kind of present that you were really excited about. You thought it was going to be one thing, and it turned out to be something very different, very disappointingly different, in fact. And your kind of excitement and anticipation turns into a frown that you try very hard not to show because we're nice people. And that's kind of what's going on in our story this morning. We're going to have that emotion going all the way through. A smile that soon, soon turns into a frown as we begin with our series this morning. And we're building up to the celebration on the 1st of April, Easter, 
Uh, it won't be a joke. It won't be uh, April Fool's Day. It really is um, a big day that we celebrate as Christians. And um, the week after that, we'll be finishing the series where we're talking about the ascension. So I really want to encourage you. Let's, let's commit ourselves. Let's say, yeah, I want, to, I want to dig into this. I really want to refresh myself in the grace of God through the stories that we're going to be enjoying in the Bible. For a thousand years before Jesus, so that's 3,000 years where we are now, um, the Jewish people had been waiting expectantly for their Messiah. Uh, this is probably not news to many of you. Um, but surely the, the promised Messiah, this national Savior that God had constantly been speaking about through prophecy. Now prophecy is God speaking to man through other people. So He puts His Spirit on people and they speak the words of God to help grow, develop, and encourage people into the right direction. So through this prophecy, um, God has been speaking to His people, and um, whether it's kind of through the, uh, the story of the Garden of Eden, it's kind of when God speaks and He starts whispering about the coming Messiah. There'll be one. He'll, he'll crush the heel of the enemy. They'll, all those kind of little words. Um, and even through the time of King David... Uh, where David himself prophesies about the coming Messiah. So people had David in mind when they were thinking about what the Messiah will be like. And there was this big sense of anticipation and national excitement. This warrior king who will be a worshipping king, who will be a king who will bring uh, riches, fame, and prosperity back into the land of Israel. The expected present, if you will, uh, out of our, our kind of Christmas analogy, the type of king, the, the kind of present they were hoping for would be in the box, would be, um, had a, a very particular size, shape, smell, sound, and, and service that he would provide to them. And they were looking for this um, very acutely at this time. So with this in mind, let's turn to our passage. Uh, we're going to be reading out of John 12. Um, so if you want to read ahead um, into kind of the, for the next couple of weeks about the Easter story, it'll be great. Get your minds fresh on what's happening. Um, you're welcome to read behind me. It will be on the screen, but it's probably even better grabbing out your own Bible, making notes, scribbling in it, making it dirty. Um, remember, it's your sword. Your sword needs to fit your hand. So, um, but let's uh, read together. John 12 from verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrives at Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Wow, let's not grow cold to that little phrase. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, as she does, apparently in Scripture, she just serves, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Amazing. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard. Now, nard was a, uh, a perfume that came from India. Okay? India to Israel. Expensive stuff. An expensive perfume. And she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, her who was later to betray him, you can tell that John really doesn't like him very much, objected, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wage. Do your maths quickly. Worth a year's wage. 
So he, he sounds very noble in that comment, doesn't he? Why? Uh, he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief as keeper of the money bag. And he used to help himself to what was put in, into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. Mm, interesting. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Verse 9. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there in Bethany and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. Wow. For, an account of, for on account of him, Lazarus, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, or sat upon it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Isn't that great when your enemies speak truth like this about you? Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. And they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. Interesting detail. Um, with a request, Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. Jesus replied, Seemingly, nothing to do with the request. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Wow. Let's pray. Father God, what a, what a great piece of Scripture. We love it. We love Scripture. We love the fact that it is your words to us inspired by the Spirit through, through people who walked with Jesus, who walked with your Son. And they teach us. Teach us now, we pray. Teach us through Scripture. Put our hearts open up by your Spirit. We want to apply. We want to be walking out different men and women because of our time in your presence this morning. Be with us, Lord, we pray. Glorify yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Did you spot the kind of king that the people were expecting? Did you kind of spot the little hints of, of what they were expecting when they were looking at Jesus? Because interestingly, not all of the expectations are wrong. Some of them are right. Some of them are on point. Let's summarize together. What kind of king were they expecting? Well, they were expecting a king who had power over life and death. 
That's a biggie. Um, Lazarus, the man who had been dead just a few days ago, and he had been dead long enough for them to say, let's not open his grave, it will smell. He is reclining at the dinner table with Jesus. Can you imagine? Is there a better testament to the power of anybody to bring the dead back to life than Lazarus walking around with Jesus? You see, the people knew scriptures like those prophesied, there's that word again, prophesied through Hannah, the wife of the chief priest Eli, in 1 Samuel 2.6, where he said, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol, which was their kind of idea of the place of death, not hell necessarily, but the place where the dead go, and He raises up. You see, they saw that God was with this man. They, they recognized Jesus was a very unique man. And that God was with him, and they wanted some of that. Secondly, the king they had in mind will make the poor Jews rich, and will make the rich Romans poor. That's what they wanted, isn't it? Even Judas, a disciple of Jesus, had this view. And it is correct to a degree. Surely spending a year's wage on this perfume is a total waste. Jesus is alive, woman. Can't you see it? Why are you acting as if he is dead? The true king should make people rich, not have them waste, spend wastefully like this. What bad money management is this? Again, 1 Samuel 2, now verse 7. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. The people knew this. They were expecting and anticipating this about the Messiah. Thirdly, he was ex it was expected that he shouldn't die or at least be killed in this kind of a way. It was, but that surely is a wrong expectation. I think this is highlighted by people's reaction to Mary's very incredible act of devotion in spending huge amount. Now, I I think we can assume that they weren't a poor family in Bethany. They were probably doing relatively well. But to spend a year's wage in something that did not make sense to the people looking around, that really seemed strange. Why is she doing this? Even though Jesus had predicted His death many times, doesn't He? That's one of the things that we, when we look at Scripture and we're making the point that Jesus is God... We look at the fact that only God surely could have predicted His own death in the way that it happened. And that's what's happening. Jesus has been predicting His death so many times, yet they did not get the fact that he, it was necessary for Jesus to die. They thought, surely, if He was the true Messiah, He wouldn't allow Himself to be hurt or killed. That's why there's that moment where, where Peter says, Jesus, that's not going to happen to you, and Jesus says to his friend Peter, get behind me, Satan. He rebukes him for even thinking that Jesus didn't need to die. So this was a real messianic uh, concept that they had in mind. Lastly, and we'll, we'll spend a bit of time on this, um, probably mainly because I, I'm an ex-soldier, and uh, the conquering military hero just resounds with me. Um, the thing that they were probably most hanging on to as a nation, as a, as a national mindset, was the fact that the king of Israel would be a conquering military hero. 
and that he would bring salvation to his people much in the same way that King David had. You see, there was military victory, there was conquest on every side. They were pushing forward. And in King David's reign, and there was this real sense, genuine hope and expectation that the new David had come in the form of Jesus. The word Hosanna is not an English word. It's not even a Greek word. It's, it's a word that, that they say has been transliterated from straight from the Hebrew. Um, they couldn't come up with a better word in the Greek. We haven't been able to come up with a better word in the English. And Hosanna literally means, oh, save! It's a declaration. It's a cry. It's a proclamation. Lord, save! And they quoted this commonly as Pilgrims used to go year after year into Jerusalem to attend the Feast of Passover. So it was a common song. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then they add, as if to really emphasize the point as to whom they are seeing in Jesus, they say, blessed is the King of Israel. Surely, there is no doubt in their mind that they have found their conquering hero who will free them from the tyranny of the horrible Romans. He will usher in an era of peace and prosperity and riches and fame and political might and military might like they'd seen under the time of King David and, and his son Saul, uh, sorry, Solomon. Interesting, interestingly, there's a character in history not particularly well known um, called Maccabeus. And he was a kind of a king-priest that lived about 150 years before the time of Jesus. And what Maccabeus had done is he'd defeated the, um, the, oh, <laughs> what's the, word? the forces of, of Syria that had been occupying the, um, the Israel, the area where Israel is. So, so Syrians have been occupying, and Maccabeus rises up, he brings an army, and they go and, and chase away the occupying Syrians. And then he also turns around and he defeats a, an uh, army out of Greece that's trying to invade into the area of Israel in the Mediterranean. So this guy, military hero, he then enters into Jerusalem and he restores the proper use of the temple and um, worship can continue there in the way that they'd always wanted. So he is paraded, this massive triumphant entry through Jerusalem with people waving palm leaves and singing Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. As he rode through the streets of Jerusalem on his war horse. Isn't that interesting? And our writer John really wants to highlight for us the comparisons and the contrasts between these two characters. Uh, it's not maybe clear to us as a modern reader, but back then, it would have been in the forefront of their minds, um, this concept of Maccabeus. And he wants to draw the parallels between the size and the shape and the smell and the sounds of the Messiah-type character of Maccabeus and the expectations that they're putting on Jesus. Maccabeus frees them from the oppressive Syrians, defeats the Greeks that are coming through, restores worship in the temple, and is paraded through the streets with palm leaves and singing of Psalm 118. We've got him on the one hand. Jesus, 
on the other hand, is very different. See, Jesus was expected now to fight off the occupying Roman army. He had already cleansed the temple. We read earlier in John, in other um, books, that happens now, in this part of the story. It's an interesting combination as the different writers try to highlight different uh, aspects of the story to to bring through a very particular angle. But in John, uh, the cleansing of the temple happens, I think, in John 3. So Jesus has already done that, and there's the expectation that He will now, uh, with hordes of followers at His back, cast out this occupying force of the Romans. And they sing Psalm 118 to highlight this expectation of victory to come and His kingship to come. Surely, how could a guy who brings the dead back to life fail them? He's a sure bet, right? Well, how does Jesus respond to all this? Because after all, people are correct in their worship of Him. Because He is King and He is Messiah. But it's an interesting uh, aspect of our story that Jesus actually accepts this worship. He knows that it will be the spark that sets off the powder keg that's going to lead to His crucifixion. R.T. France, just interestingly, little phrase, he says, he was aiming to be noticed. And I think that's right. Jesus was aiming to be noticed in this moment. You might recall in John 6, when Jesus feeds the 5,000, people are so impressed with Him that he, they, they immediately, almost by force, try to uh, make Him King of Israel. And what Jesus does is He literally turns and runs for the hills. It was not His time. It was not His moment to be noticed. But this time, He embraces the chairs of the people. He embraces the crowds. He embraces their desires for the King. But He can also see that their expectations are off, are skew, are uh, incorrect. And He tries to correct them, albeit in a very, very subtle way at the time. So we read in John 12, 14, just going back to our scripture, he says, Jesus found a young donkey and he sat upon it. As it is written, do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. And we read that at first, his disciples did not understand all of this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they get it. So Jesus purposefully sets about distancing himself from the expectations of the people. Very subtly, people probably thought, oh, he's gone for a donkey because he couldn't find a horse or whatever. Either way, he very purposefully goes for the donkey and he sets himself apart from the warrior king types like David and Maccabeus. And instead, he's aware of the prophet Zechariah's prophecies from 500 years earlier. Surely God is just so wise. 500 years earlier, this is written, Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
verse 10. If I cut off the chariot, sorry, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. Wow, isn't this so different? He shall rule. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of my blood, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Isn't Jesus the river of life where we go and drink? Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I, dec- I declare that I will restore to you double. Wow, that's the kingdom of God that Jesus is talking about and is trying to draw attention to. Zechariah's promise is the a prophecy is the thing that Jesus is trying to highlight as he climbs onto his donkey. He's, he's trying to indicate that his kingship will be humble, righteous kingship. A king that will serve rather than be served. A king that will bring peace rather than war. A king that will set free prisoners from the greatest prison of all. Ultimate death through separation from God. A king for whom kingship over Israel alone is too small a thing. Jesus had the world in mind. He had the nations in mind. From sea to sea, from the rivers to the ends of the earth. In fact, all of creation, the heavens and the earth, are the Lord's. Our author, John, then comes in and he hammers this point home. This point of Jesus' global kingship by immediately and ironically, um, it, it comes in straight after the words by the Pharisees, which says, look, the whole world has gone after him. And he ironically introduces these Greeks who come to look for Jesus and want to meet with him. The people indeed have come from the furthest reaches of the earth to come and meet with this God. And worship him. John doesn't tell us whether the Greeks ever get to meet Jesus, um, but John uses this as the moment to highlight the massive scale, the, the global scale of the events that are going to unfold in the next week, the events that we're building up to into Easter. Jesus, the seed that must fall to the ground and die, so that a massive harvest that will fill all the earth. His presence will come. His kingdom will come to every corner of the globe. And even if those Greeks hadn't met Jesus then and there, we know that because of the gospel moving forward by the power of the Spirit, the disciples doing what they were asked to do, go and make disciples of all the nations, we can expect that they had the opportunity to join in with the family of God. So the crowd in our story, however, was still expecting this Christmas gift to be spectacular. This present they held in their hand that looked, smelt, sounded like it should be like a King David or a King Maccabeus type of gift. Their lives, they thought, are going to be better by the worldly standards that they were looking at because of this king. They certainly weren't there because they were willingly, worshipfully wanting to lose their lives in worship to him. See, iPads... Beats by Dre, Xbox One, Diamond Pendants. This Christmas was going to be awesome. It was going to be the full package. 
But the king that Jesus turns out to be is hardly the king that they're expecting. And in fact, if you think of within five days, the chanting crowds, they turn from Hosanna, blessed is the king, to crucify him, crucify him. Just as a point to highlight how stark, how, how in a sense, brutal their disillusionment was with Jesus, their expectation versus the Jesus that they saw in the next few days leading up to his crucifixion. I think the reality, friends, is that the majority of the crowd were not worshiping and honoring Jesus as God. They needed a functional Savior, somebody who was going to do for them the stuff that they needed doing. They needed to be freed from the tyranny of the Romans. They needed and wanted to be established again as a major military and political might. They needed and wanted to have prosperity and riches flood back into the kingdom. They didn't want to live a humble, submitted life to Jesus, who was the maker of the heavens and the earth. They were willing to tolerate Him and support Him as long as He gave them what they wanted. I wonder what kind of king we would expect. I wonder what kind of king we are expecting. If you're a Christian here this morning, what kind of king are you living for? and worshiping by your life. If you're not a Christian this morning, and you're kind of investigating Christianity, what kind of king would you expect to be one who is worthy of your life? If this guy called Jesus, or Joshua is a more common name in our culture, it's exactly the same name, Joshua, uh, my son's Joshua, means God is my salvation. Joshua, Jesus, if he pitched up in Cheltenham and he said... Right, I'm going to tear this place down and in three days I'm going to build it all up again. Are we going to go, yeah, right. Hey, I, me and the Father, we're one. I am like God. We would say, yeah, okay, keep smoking what you're smoking. <laughs> you're a madman. I think we're sometimes too harsh with the Pharisees. I think... I would say and do pretty much everything that they said and did. I think my reaction probably was the same, would have been the same. Critical, suspicious. Good thing there is a way to assess the kind of king that we're worshipping and the kind of king that we're expecting. If we look at our lives and our lifestyles, they'll tell us about the kind of king that we're expecting. I suspect most of us, in some shape or form, if not all of us, would consider wealth, health, prosperity, comfort, peace in our lives a hallmark of supporting the right kind of king. What do I mean by that? I think when things are going well, we think, well, great, that's how it's supposed to be. The God whom I have pledged my allegiance to is doing His thing. Maybe we dust God off a little bit, along with our Bibles on a Sunday, and we kind of come in, 
we smile, we shake hands, we drink the good coffee, we eat the biscuits, and then we repeat. And as long as he holds up his end of the bargain, it's a-okay. Life is good. But when our health is suddenly threatened, when we are anxious about money or losing control in life, when there is a death or conflict with people or family, friends, when our desired level of, con of comfort is threatened, these are often the moments that we feel most acutely we need to run back to God. We need to read. We better start praying. We better get to community groups. Maybe I should start giving. All of a sudden, we start running into doing mode. Am I right? As if somehow by doing these things, we think we can twist God's arm into giving us the life that surely we deserve to have and we should get. And, oh heaven help him, if he is slow in doing it the way that we want it done, or not doing it the way we think it should be done. Man, we get grumpy. Sound familiar? That's me. That's me. I do that. Instead of the warhorse riding, Roman conquering, prosperity bringing king, the people in our story got a king who humbly got on a donkey foal. That must have been a journey. It's like this little... You kind of need to help your song along with feet, because how, how high is a donkey fall? How, how heavy a human being can it carry? That's a humbling thing. A king who cries over the state of the, the people of Israel and of Jerusalem. There's this great moment where Jesus looks out over Jerusalem and he cries. He says, oh, Jerusalem, oh, I wish I could bring you in under my wings. King who came to love and be a friend to the hurting and the oppressed and the poor and the sinner and the broken and the lost. That's our Jesus. A king who, though being God, stoops down. He washes his own friend's feet, his disciples' feet. He came to serve rather than to be served. A king who, knowing the crooked, my crooked and self-obsessed hearts, maybe like you as well, knowing that He still chose to lay down His life for us. In our place on a Roman cross, out of the passion and love that He felt in bringing us into His family. I think the answer to our moments of weakness in our faith and in our flimsiness in our commitment to God is not let's pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, work harder, try harder, try to prove that we love God and hope that He'll then do what we ask. That's not the answer. It's not waving palm branches more vigorously. It's not shouting Hosanna more loudly. That is David or Maccabean type of kingship that we're stumbling into. That's not the Christian, the Christian life, friends. That's moralism. That's, that's pride masquerading as faith. And that kind of faith does not save. That kind of faith does not change hearts, does not change lives. The Christian faith is about seeing the heart of God in the face of Jesus and rejoicing. Like Mary, 
with her expensive perfume, recognizing the lavishness of His love and His grace toward us. Whilst, this is so key, whilst we were still rebels, while I still hated God and I was His enemy, He died for me, loved me. As we consider His journey, His suffering, His crucifixion, and His death, as it were by my hands, by our hands, the miracle of His invitation for us to join Him and to join His mission into all the earth and to join His family, how can that but not break our hearts for who God is, for who Jesus is and what He has done? And how can it not stiffen our desire to moment by moment, day in, day out, week in, week out, increasingly walk in the grace that He's given us? With this King, King Jesus, our moments of greed or anxiety about money are eclipsed by the shower of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places where Christ is seated, that He has won for us by His price paid, His life, His sacrifice. How would the Father who did not spare His own Son on our behalf not surely give us everything we need, not everything we want, but everything we need. So if money, anxiety, is something that you struggle with, look to Jesus. Cast your eye on Him again. The pain, the shame, the suffering of Jesus on the cross helps our hearts to know that our health the health of loved ones are in the safe hands of a good God who went through the worst of it so that we never need to. His heart is good towards us. He wants the good for us. We see that. The proof is in the pudding as it is, as they say. It's in the cross. Our death is a certain gain. Don't fear death, friends. If you're a Christ follower this morning, don't fear death. It is a certain gain as we humbly follow Jesus, our King, who defeated death, both through Lazarus and in Himself, as He was declared righteous and holy by the Father. His death pleased God the Father. That's why He says it is finished. It's finished. No fear of death anymore. A King who reminds us how much we've been forgiven when pride, when strife, when anger threatens to come between us. Maybe you're struggling in a relationship right now with somebody. It's not going well. Your pride's in the way. Anger is in the way. Resentment, unforgiveness, bitterness. Who could remain hard in the face of the incredible forgiveness that we've received in Jesus? Oh, look to Jesus, friends. With a life in humble submission to King Jesus, the punishment we deserve for our rebellion was put on Him. And therefore, we are so fully assured that every day will be a good day with Jesus. It's a good day, filled not with condemnation, but the adventure of life, the adventure of faith, where peace and fullness of joy live. Chasing after the comfortable life in Cheltenham can never compare can never compare. It'll always fall horribly short. 
Friends, we need a place where we can anchor these things, anchor these truths, regularly massage them into our lives and allow them to permeate every crevice of our lives. That's why we, we so highlight our community groups. That's why we profile that as we say Sundays are great, but we get in, into community groups and that's where we do life. We massage these things. We encourage one another. We spur one another on in love and good works as it says in Hebrews 10. With the benefit of the Holy Spirit, the Bible, and with hindsight, we know that although not an iPad or Beats by Dre or any other gift that we might be expecting, Jesus is the gift we need. He's the most precious, the most special, the most glorious, the most priceless gift in all of creation. He is worthy of our Hosanna. Save us, O God, O great King. He's worthy of our lives. He's worthy of us humbly following Him and dropping our life, the seed of our life, as it were, into the ground and allowing it to die, humbly saying, O God, I give myself to You. You You are my King. And allowing that seed to germinate and bring, like the feeding of the 5,000 and wonderful, fruitful harvest that's going to fill the earth. That is the call. I I look and I see a hundred people here. hundred seeds that are going to bear fruit and multiply across the face of the earth the glory and the kingdom of God. Wow. And He's worth our worship. Not because He somehow can offer us something that to make our lives better, but because He is God, because of what He's done. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.